Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Breton Rodriguez, and I'm speaking with Belen Vicens about the medieval crown of Aragon. In particular, we are discussing what the law codes and the distribution of land might tell us about life and society in the Middle Ages in the crown of Aragon. First, however, a little information about our guest. Dr. Belen Vicens is a historian of law and society in medieval Spain and the Mediterranean world, with an emphasis on relations between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. Other interests include material culture, cartography, visual art, and women's history. She's an assistant professor of history at Salisbury University in Maryland. Dr. Vicens is a native of Catalonia in Spain, where she received two undergraduate degrees from the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona. In the United States, she has earned two master's degrees, one in Islamic studies from UCLA and another in history from Notre Dame. She earned her doctorate at the University of Notre Dame in 2016. Dr. Vicente's publications include a co-edited volume titled Interfaith Relationships and Perceptions of the Other in the Medieval Mediterranean, Essays in Memory of Olivia Remy Constable, published in 2021 in Paul Graves' Mediterranean Perspectives, and an award-winning article on Christian-Muslim relations titled Swearing by God, Muslim Oath-Taking in Late Medieval and Early Modern Christian Iberia. Dr. Vicenz is currently working, among other projects, on a book manuscript titled Negotiating Power and Privilege, Law, Monarchy, and the Nobility in Medieval Aragon that draws upon her dissertation work. Dr. Vicenz, welcome. Thank you so much, Brad. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm so glad you could be here speaking with me. Um, all right, so I, I do want to just kind of jump in and jump into it. So the first question, and I, I would like to start a little bit broadly, um, I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about the origins and history of the crown of Aragon, as well as its place in 13th century medieval Iberia. In particular, in your work, you, you refer to this concept of the crown of Aragon as this composite monarchy. And I was wondering if you could speak just a little bit about what you mean by that. Sure. Yes. I think I'm going to address the latter part of your question first, because it's easier to begin with that. So composite monarchy is a term that has been used to refer to um, political entities or states that are unified um, under one ruler, but maintain their own separate institutions, laws, officials, and even languages, right? So the crown of Aragon encompassed the original kingdom of Aragon in the county of Barcelona, in towards the middle of the 13th century, the newly formed kingdoms of Valencia and Mallorca, right? So they're all together in the crown, but they have one ruler, but each of these realms gets to keep their own institutions in a way. So to go back to your question about origins and history, um, the crown of Aragon is, is the term that modern historians have invented, right? And um, it refers to um, a dynastic union that happened in the mid 12th century between two houses in Northeastern Iberia, right? The House of Aragon, uh, which was a royal house since the 11th century, and the House of Catalonia, which was a comital house, you know, of, of counts and countesses, um, and was indeed the most important among several counties in Catalonia. Right. And, and these two houses emerge in the context of um, Carolingian influence in, in the sort of called Hispanic March as a buffer zone between the Carolingians and the Andalusis, the Muslims. Right. 
So from its origins to the 13th century, uh, the crown of Aragon has been shaped by political struggles um, of all sorts and colors and stripes. And, and I say, and I think that contrary to what most people imagine, Aragon's main rivals were necessarily the Muslims. In fact, uh, they were as often Muslims as they were Christian neighbors, right? Um, and so by the mid 13th century, the crown of Aragon has almost tripled its original um, territory and has become a major player in the socio-political landscape of the Iberian Peninsula alongside the crown of Castile, right? And with growing commercial uh, interests in the Mediterranean world. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm particularly struck by this idea that kind of the crown of Aragon is something that we use to classify it today. So folks kind of living in this period, would they consider themselves a citizen or inhabitant of Barcelona, Aragon, Valencia, Mallorca, eventually, things like that? Would it be more kind of this local identification or would they still have this larger identification of their, their place as well? Yeah, that is an excellent question. So if you look at the charters that come from uh, the Crown's chancery during James I's reign, right? It, it's never the Crown of Aragon, right? He's always intitulated King of Aragon, Count of Barcelona, Lord of Montpellier, King of uh, of Mallorca, King of, of Valencia, etc. Right? It's it's there's never this notion that all these realms are are given a name, and that is the Crown of of, of Aragon, right? And so at the level of the people, I would say that identification with a town or a city is probably the most current form of identity. That's what you would see, for example, in court documents, right? Certain individual who comes from this particular town or city. But I think there's also, you know, a level of identification with a larger entity. Uh, be it a county or the kingdom, right? So when we look at, for example, the Aragonese noblemen who are settling in the north of Valencia, right? And and um, they're hoping that they can sort of use these new territories as an extension of their power bases in Aragon, right? What they're going to do is say, well, okay, these new territories are not part of the kingdom of Aragon, but we want to use the law of Aragon in these Valencian territories that we oversee, right? So there's, you know, there's there's a sense that some people are coming from Aragon, others are coming from Catalonia, and 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 and, and they're aware of the differences in language, differences in customs and culture, etc. I, I definitely want to kind of pick up the, this idea of these different laws coming into contact with one another in, in a moment. But first, I do, you mentioned the figure of James I. I know a lot of your earlier work talks quite a bit about him. He's also a really major figure in, in the history of the Crown of Aragon in general. Um, so I was wondering if you could just speak, give us a little bit more information about who he was, what made him so important, and also maybe just talk a little bit about some of the ways that he, he shaped and influenced the Crown of Aragon. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Hollywood producers, you know, how long is it going to take you for, to, to make a movie out of uh, James I's life, right? He's such a fascinating character. And uh, we're really fortunate to have an account of his own life 
that he carefully composed toward the end of his life in the 1270s. So, you know, this makes him rather unusual because you don't have a lot of autobiographies from medieval monarchs in general. So we have that, right? And um, of course, he's going to project a very well-crafted image of himself as a champion of Christianity, victorious in the battlefield, uh, a politically savvy, uh, deft, and um, almost like cunning um, ruler, right? But there's more to him, right? There's, there's plenty of moral flaws and shortcomings that he, you know, that he hopes that he can compensate with his military expeditions. He's chastised many, many times by successive popes because he, you know, he, um, some historians have called him a womanizer. There was a, there was a problem with one of his partners, uh, Teresa Gil de Vidaure, whom I studied in my uh, most recent project. And it seems like they exchanged the promise to marry, but they didn't materialize. They didn't sort of formalize the union. And so he then went on to take all their partners. And so in the eyes of the church, he was committing adultery, right? Mm. So, and in his mind, he thought, well, you know, I've done so much for Christian men. Man, what is this little, this little pecadillo, right? <laughs> why, why is this so important? Right? He is also someone who tells us a great deal about the way that he co-ruled with his second wife, Queen Violand of Hungary. She's constantly there in negotiation. She uh, has his ear, gives him counsel, advice. She's very much part of um, the ruling uh, elite, right? Um, there's so much about James that I, that I think is fascinating, right? I mean, he's a ruler who, unlike most rulers in the Iberian Peninsula, is probably, I think, the um, the longest ruler in Iberian history. His reign lasted 67 years, right? Started with lots of problems as an orphan child, um, following his father's defeat at the Battle of Muret, struggled with lots of um, factionalism in his youth, and then slowly, you know, as he turn his attention towards Mallorca and Valencia in the late uh, 1220s and, and onwards, right? He, he sort of um, came up with this, this, this way of sort of rallying the different factions, Aragonese and Catalan to a unified cause, right? To continuate with dynasty's designs of expansion, right? And when he was uh, victorious in his campaigns that sort of cemented his authority, his fame mm. and recognition, made him extremely rich, uh, but also vulnerable, and um, allowed him to sort of gradually, um, you know, begin to sort of expand and centralize his his grip over the realms. I mean, well, first of all, I would I would definitely watch a movie about James I. This this sounds great. I mean, you have everything, this early childhood trauma, and then he goes on to be this conqueror and this king. I mean, he conquers Valencia, conquers Mallorca, he becomes this major figure. 
that that I would I'd watch the hell out of that. But Me too. <laughs> I have lots more questions for you, but just kind of a quick follow up on that. Um, I'm I'm really kind of struck as well. You mentioned the autobiography, which he writes through the end of his life, where he's kind of kind of reshaping his his reign in in a, in a way, and I'm kind of just wondering a little bit about the the languages that he's using because he's writing it in Catalan, if I remember correctly. Do do we yeah. see? Do we, do we see kind of language being this unifying force within the within his kingdoms? Is this one way he tries to kind of unify things, or do we see different dialect or different languages competing with one another? So I, I know this is a big question, but I'm just wondering if you could kind of touch a little bit on kind of the way that language is being used within this within this space as well. Yeah, so language has become a very politicized issue in the historiography, right? And and some historians have wanted to see a king who identified himself as a Catalan individual because of his choice of language for the autobiography, right? And, and I think that the issue is much more complicated than that. I think there is a constellation of languages, right? That for the most part seem to me to be mutually, mutually intelligible, right? Um, there's different dialects in Aragon, different dialects in Catalonia and then the new dialects that will spring up in Mallorca and Valencia, right? So um, I don't think that he, you know, by his choice of language in the autobiography, I don't think he's trying to use a language as a language that will be some sort of a unifying force for his realms at all, because, you know, um, the prominent members of the elite are going to continue to transact in the languages that are convenient to them. Mm. Um, so I don't think that there's, I don't think we can see uh, a conscious move uh, to impose some sort of a uniforming homogeneity over his realms. And, and then we mustn't forget also the fact that the, um, the vast majority of his chancery documents will continue to be issued in Latin. Mm. The law codes are also an interesting point of, of investigation because you're going to see some written in Catalan, others in Aragonese, in Provençal, in a variety of languages, right? But there's always a simultaneous project to translate them into Latin, right? And, and the Latin version is a, is a form that becomes the official rendition of the texts. So I think there's, there's, you know, it's a very interesting question. And of course, we mustn't forget also that there's Andalusi dialects, right? Um, there's also the Hebrew language. And um, I think there's a very interesting interplay of different languages used by different peoples in different contexts and for different purposes. Um, no, that, that's really that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, so you, you mentioned law a second ago as well. So I, I want to kind of follow up on this, this idea of the law and the way we see the law developing um, during the reign of James I as well. Um, so, I mean, in, in a lot of your, your earlier research, you talk about one law code in particular, the Vidal Mayor. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this law code, um, and also if you could speak a little bit about the jurist who composed it, which is Vidal de Caneas. The Vidal Mayor, yes, this is the name of a text, a legal text, and the name itself tells us that, well, if there is a mayor, 
there's got to be a minor, right? If there's a greater part, there's got to be a lesser or, or like smaller part, right? And Vidal is is in recognition of the person who is credited with its compilation, which is Vidal de Caminos, right? So let me say a few things about the text first. Um, so the Vidal Mayor is a text of about nine books that is very much fashioned after the model uh, set in Justinian's uh, Corpus Juris Civilis. And so it's, it's a book, it's a, a compilation of laws, customary laws from Aragon, the so-called Fueros, right? That is given an organization in, in sort of a uh, you know, way of, of, of understanding and, and framing it that is Roman legal in origin, right? It's taking a customary tradition, a tradition of fueros and giving it um, a reformulation and reframing according to Roman law. And this is something that apparently, according to the text itself, began in 1247 at the behest of James I, who commissioned uh, the Bishop of Huesca in Aragon and someone who's gonna be a very important courtier and his name is Vidal de Canellas. Right? So this compilation is unique, is special because it's the first time that we have a legal compilation that is intended for the entirety of the kingdom of Aragon, right? It's a territorial compilation, right? Whereas previously from the 11th and 12th centuries onwards, what we had were compilations of fueros that were associated with individual towns and cities. There's the fuero of Jaca, very important fuero. There's the Fuero of Huesca, the Fuero of Zaragoza, right? These are all important towns in Aragon, right? So for the first time, there's this uh, deliberate move to have one code for the entire kingdom of Aragon and all of its inhabitants. About Vidal de Canellas, um, there's much that we could say uh, of his sort of work in service for the crown. He's, as I said before, a very important member of the court. He acts as a diplomat. He sometimes is appointed by the king to uh, adjudicate cases as a judge. Um, he takes on this role as a compiler. He is in numerous negotiations after the fall of the city of Valencia. He mediates in conflict between the king and especially the Aragonese nobility. So he has a multiple roles hmm. that he um, takes on um, as soon as he becomes Bishop of Huesca. Uh, and so what he does in the Vidal Mayor is he presents this reformulated legal landscape of the kingdom of Aragon and does something also that is very interesting sets this kind of work apart from others and that's the because he includes a running commentary in the entire Vidal Mayor so it has laws that are organized according to the principles of Roman law right and it has 
Vidal's own explanations, interpretations, and ideas about the applicability of those laws. I, I, I mean, that it's, it sounds really fascinating. I, I want to kind of push you on the second part in a second, because I'm really curious with the way this really reflects really the society of the Kingdom of, of Aragon in, in general. Um, but first, just kind of taking a step back, I'm also really interested in the way that we see this this text or could see this text as a way of James I trying to exert more control over his kingdom, looking at the politics of this text as well. Um, so I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about whether you think this, I mean, was the primary intention of it. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested that James I is the one kind of going to Canales and, and asking him to write this text, compose this text, compile it. Um, and so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about a little bit more about the politics of it, and then also maybe talk a little bit about whether it was kind of successful in this or not, whether we see this text actually really changing or kind of unifying the country or the kingdom in some way. Um, and just to make things a little bit more difficult for you as well, I was wondering if you could also compare this to another famous legal text that we have from a little bit later, um, which is Alfonso X's um, Siete Partidas in the Kingdom of Castile as well. So. Okay, sure. I'm going to try to sort of keep all of those questions in mind. Okay, so yes, you know, to, to a certain degree, one way that we can understand what James I is trying to do is to set it against broader patterns of his time, right? This is not the first time that we see a ruler, right, intending to, you know, reform the legal landscapes of his realms and possibly to um, gain a better control of uh, the administration of justice in its realms, right? We see that with Frederick II, the constitutions mm -hmm. of Melfi, famously, right? And we see it with other contemporary rulers, and, and especially with the case of Alfonso X, James I's uh, son-in-law and junior to him. You know, on the one hand, it's important that we understand the broader context but on the other hand, I see key differences between the project in Aragon compared to, for example, the Siete Partidas, or, you know, to go even farther away from, you know, uh, what Bracton is, is attempting to do with the Legibus um, in Britain. I see the Vidal Mayor first and foremost as the work of a jurist. It, it, it's a book that, that bears all the marks of a legal mind that is carefully engaging with the problems, the challenges of reforming a customary tradition in a way that is sort of attuned to uh, what he's learned during his um, higher education studies at Bologna, right? He's a Bologna graduate, which is interesting because I think behind these legal projects in the 13th century, we see all of these Bologna graduates going back to their home territories in, in, in sort of remodeling, reforming uh, their customary traditions according to what they've learned in law school. Um, so yes, it is a commission by the king, but there's much less interference or mediation in the Vidal Mayor from the king than you would see, for example, in the Siete Partidas, mm -hmm. right? The Siete Partidas 
is is already in itself quite a different project, right? So this is this vast, comprehensive, um, you know, compendium of uh, laws and, and a way of sort of re-envisioning uh, a new society, a new Castilian society within the parameters of uh, uh, Roman law, imperial law. The Vietnam Mayor doesn't quite do that, doesn't have those aspirations, right? It's, um, it has plenty of fueros that come from Jaca and other earlier traditions, um, but I think that overall what it tries to do is to give the tools to the legal professionals in Aragon at the time, right? To be able to uh, use this new idea, this new project, this, this invention, this law code that is now applicable to the entire territory. Um, and to be able to take the, the precepts, the ideas and the explanations in the Vida Mayor and to make them work in their day-to-day -day activities as legal professionals. I think that this is the key to understanding the Vidal Mayor, that is not necessarily a code of law and that it wasn't intended to be approved or, or promulgated as such, but was intended more as a, as a handbook for contemporary legal scholars and professionals. Okay, so kind of there's this kind of living document that people could use and kind of really turn to as a way of, of interpreting the law. Yes, and so, you know, that would explain why we only have one manuscript hmm. of this work, right? The Vidal Mayor is a unicum. Hmm. Only one exemplar has survived. And whereas we do have multiple copies of just the fueros in this revised form, but without Vidal de Canella's commentary, with many manuscripts of only the fueros. Huh. And by the time we get to 1300s, uh, there will be one official compilation of fueros and doesn't have a Vidal's commentary. That, that's, that's really fascinating. I didn't know that we got the pharaohs kind of being transmitted without the commentary. So that's, that's cool. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the commentary, though. I'm, I'm just kind of interested in what the commentary, and I mean, really what the pharaohs in general, but especially the commentary, um, could tell us about Aragonese society during this period and what it tells us about kind of life in medieval Aragon during this period. The commentary is throughout the books, right? It's, it's throughout the entire compilation, right? Um, but there is one particular section where Vidal inserted what I think is really a tractate you know, a small treatise on the way he envisioned uh, Aragonese society at the time. And I think that's a really important little mini tracted treatise in there. It doesn't necessarily contain any fueros, um, but it gives you an insight into how he thought Aragonese society uh, ought to be organized in order, right? Mm. So. It's a very sort of taxonomical arrangement of people, you know, from uh, the magnates at the top and why they're magnates and why they deserve the status, um, all the way to the unfree uh, serfs, right? So there's that order of society that is probably 
you know, probably has some bearing with reality for sure. These are terms that appear in charters. So these are terms that are contemporary, right? He talks about the omnis de servicio, you know, as a term to refer to the serfs. And that's something hmm. that we see in the charters, right? So there's every reason to believe that um, his envisioning, his categorization of contemporary society, um, you know, was to an extent reflected in practice. Um, but there's obviously uh, glaring omissions. Women are not even included in his classification of society and distracted in particular, right? Um, and, and neither are, for the most part, um, Jews and Muslims. Huh. And there's very little that he says about uh, merchants and towns of people, right? So he has a very sort of slanted, maybe because he himself was a of aristocratic stock, right? And so that's that's really fascinating. I mean, I, it's as, particularly as you think about territories like Valencia, which we're going to talk about in a second. That when he conquered it, would have been predominantly occupied by by folks that are being left out of this of this law code, with this law code that's supposed to be kind of really applicable throughout his kingdoms. So why don't, why don't we go ahead and why don't we move on and talk a little bit about Valencia. Um, a lot of your recent work is focused on looking at the after effects of the conquest of Valencia in 1238 by James I and its incorporation into the crown of Aragon. So I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about what would have happened after this conquest and, and the immediate kind of after effects of it. In particular, could you speak a little bit about how the land and territory would have been divided up? Um, also what what would have happened to the previous owners of the land i think here we kind of connect back to this idea of looking at the muslim communities looking at some of the earlier some of the other inhabitants of these territories that are being ruled by james the first yeah so i would say that the conquest of uh, the territories that would become um the new kingdom of valencia was was quite of a mess you know to be honest um I think he he wanted to take pride in the fact that the capital city, the city of Valencia, did fall in 1238, right? But um, the actual control of these newly conquered lands, and especially to the south of the capital, was was far from a foregone conclusion. Hmm. Right? In fact, he will spend the remainder of his of his life in periodical campaigns to recuperate dominions, assert his control, or basically just to quell Muslim rebellions, right? And, and in fact, he will die in the midst of the latest iteration uh, of a Muslim rebellion in an attempt to pacify the region, right? So yeah, this is not a clean cut conquest at all, right? It's, it's, it's quite messy complicated and, and, and will give him plenty of headaches throughout his life. So the city capitulated in September of 1238, the city of Valencia, hmm. and um, an agreement was reached that allowed its Muslim and Jewish inhabitants to leave unharmed, right? Whereas anywhere else in, in the hinterland of Valencia, um, there were attempts to keep the populations, the local populations in place, the peasants, the artisans, the craftsmen, so that uh, they could continue to be productive, right? 
but in Valencia, it, it became clear that there was too much uh, at stake, a lot of riches, a lot of important buildings, a, a lot of sort of potentially uh, very attractive and rich land surrounding Valencia. And so uh, it was completely emptied, huh. right? So when they entered, the, the, the king and the elites began this, this process of dividing the spoils, right? And it was a rather haphazard and messy, disorderly process. There's an anecdote in James I's autobiography uh, that recounts a dispute within his own council with regards to, you know, who is going to take charge of dividing the spoils. And it's not the king huh. at any point, right? The, the assumption is that the king and the magnates will come together and appoint the commission of a select few men to oversee the division of spoils. He doesn't get to decide on his own who gets what. And I think this is really interesting. Um, and in fact, what uh, the, the commission uh, is going to be composed of is uh, a prelate and a layman, right? An aristocrat and a prelate. And uh, the person, the, the, um, the magnates appoint is Vidal de Canellas, hmm. which is of course, makes perfect sense because of his prominent position in court. But interestingly, this is not the king's own choice, right? So he's he's this very interesting character that is in neatly at all times in the service of the king's interests. He's a much more complicated and more interesting figure. So, you know, naturally the choicest houses, the largest and richest lands are going to end up in the hands of the elites and the monarchy for sure. Vidal is a good example of that. He gets a few houses at the heart of the city where the Andalusia elite had resided. Hmm. Uh, a couple of villages in the vicinity of Valencia in, in what is called the Huerta, the Green Belt of Valencia in a kind of like a recreation ma mansion of sorts that had belonged to a member of the Andalusia elite right outside of the walls of Valencia, right? So rich, fertile, um, prestigious uh, lands and, and properties are given to Vidal, for example. And we know this because of a register of donations, right, which is fairly common in the context of medieval Iberia, right? So the division of spoils is recorded down in uh, a book, right? This one is called the Libre del Repartimiento Valencia. It has a number of scribes working for the crown, copying down, annotating who gets what and where, right? Um, and this is a process that will take a couple of decades to complete and total amount of entries, total number of entries is, I just had to go find the number and share it with you. It's 3,949 entries. Oh, wow. Um, so this is this is striking for me. I've I've never I don't think I've ever heard of a city being completely emptied and then completely divvied up in this way. Um, 
I mean, do we, you mentioned that this is different from what we see in the hinterland and the countryside. Do we see something similar in Mallorca and the islands as well? Or is this kind of just completely atypical, just the city of Valencia is this, this weird case or this different case? Yeah, that is an excellent question. I think it varies. Um, it varies from city to city. It varies uh, depending on, you know, whether or not the king has pledged the houses or the lands in a given city to a particular group of, of warriors and magnates. It depends on whether or not the Andalusi warriors, you know, fight to the end or they capitulate and they negotiate a term, terms of surrender. I think, I think it really varies, but in the case of the city of Valencia, clearly they knew that this was too attractive, too promising, too enticing to give up. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm also the other, the other part of your description I found really fascinating is this idea that it's not the king giving out these lands directly. I would have thought that kind of my, my previous idea would have just been the king's like, all right, you get this, you get that. The king's giving out favors to reward those who, who supported him. Um, and I think this kind of speaks to this idea that you, you talk about in your writing, this idea of kind of this type of corporate kingship. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea and also how we might, how it might have affected this, this, this type of land distribution that we see following the conquest of Valencia and this commission that gets set up to, to divide up these, these territories. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, if we only look at the language of uh, the charters of donations and, you know, the Libre del Repartiment, the impression you get is that it is the king who is the architect mm. of the remapping, the divvying up of uh, Valencian lands, right? The charters always are going to say, it is I, the king, who gives you, uh, you know, my dearest friend or family member, etc., this portion of lands, right? That's That's always the conventional language. But I think that we overlook, or we tend to overlook, that behind all of those charters, there's there's negotiations, lively, heated negotiations, right? I mean, the the magnates also have their own ways of learning about, you know, what are the choices, houses and lands, right? They have their own ways of of learning. Um, what's in their best interest, or they're going to press for it. Hmm. Um, why? Well, because, you know, the entire southern part of the new kingdom is is yet to be controlled. And this is a mechanism for the monarchy to ensure continued loyalty and support in the following military campaigns, of which they will be many, Right. And I think this this idea of corporate kingship helps us to move away from a traditional way of understanding medieval politics. Like it's 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 there's much more to medieval politics than what kings did and said, right? And and there's a growing growing body of scholarship that is showing us that you know there's there's plenty of royal women, queens, queen mothers sisters and daughters and other influential members of the court, including prelates and magnates, right, that all together helped shape 
uh, the governance, the governance of their realms as much as as kings did, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is a very welcome trend. It's it's broadening our understanding. It's forcing us to rethink um, these relationships and to sort of break down the monarchy slash aristocracy dichotomy, right? For for a long time, we've come to think of aristocrats as you know, usurpers of public order, um, as people who are only interested in in their own, you know, advantage to enrich themselves at mm. the expense of anybody else, right? That they are myopic in their objectives, that they are an obstacle for the centralization of, of monarchical power, right? And in my sense is that rather, you know, we should be looking at the aristocrats of, of every color and stripe as, as legitimate participants in these political communities, right? Who used a variety of mechanisms that included coercion, of course, but also negotiation in order to achieve a, a variety of goals, right? That, um, that shifted according to circumstances in much the same way that uh, kings and other royals did, right? So that's that's where I, you know, I'm I'm sort of leading to in my own scholarship, right? No, I, I think that's really fascinating, and I think that that's great. Um, I, I do I do think we have this default idea that the king has the right, or kind of the king is the legitimate authority, and the nobles are trying to usurp it or take it from them or kind of claw this power away from them. But yeah, I, I do think this this the way you're looking at Valencia really reflects reality on the ground where they also have rights to territories. They also have rights to kind of press their claims as well. So I, I think that, that's interesting. Um, another thing that I really love about your work in particular is the way that you're able to get very particular and really focus in on these concrete examples. And so in, in some of your recent work, for instance, you talk a lot about what comes or what you refer to as Vidal's lot. Um, so I was wondering if you if you could speak just a little bit about this, um, and also just in particular talk a little bit about what it is that makes this property so desirable to so many different people, and also how does the history of ownership of this property reflect some of these larger political issues that we see, really in the in the decades following the conquest of Valencia and the way this reflects the incorporation of Valencia and these new territories into the Kingdom of Aragon. So Vidal's lot is my own coinage. I, I invented that term, right? I'm referring to a collection of properties that was put together and given to Vidal de Canellas, our famous bishop and jurist in 1238 during the siege of the city of Valencia. I mean, this, this was happening even before the, the Andalusi rulers capitulated. Right. So Vidal gets, um, as I said, a couple of villages, um, some houses in the city of Valencia, a mansion, and, and some adjacent um, lands for cultivation. Right? And, and this creates a lot of property, a, a, a package, hmm. a really attractive package that I've been able to trace from the 12 from 1238 all the way to the turn of the 14th century right because it is going to change hands you know when Vidal de Canellas dies in 1252 there's an interesting move and in rather than being sold 
and and the revenue used to to benefit a church near Huesca, Santa Maria de Salas, which mm. he put in his will, he wanted to uh, benefit this 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 church, right, with the the proceeds from the sale of the of the lot of of Vidal's lot, right. Rather than that happening, we see, you know, the intervention of James I and his partner at the time, this this noblewoman of Navarrese origins, Teresa Gil de Vidaure, right? Mm. And so somehow Vidal's lot ends up in the hands of Teresa. The new bishop of Huesca will sell it to her, right? Mm. And then shortly after, this lot is now again exchanged and given to a family, an important Genoese family that had been established in the crown of Aragon for a long time, um, the Della Volta, right? It seems that the Della Voltas were facing financial penury and, and difficulties and um, they called on the king to, you know, help them out as a favor, as a token of friendship. And so Vidal's lot was given to the De La Voltas in exchange for their dominion in New Catalonia, the castle of Flix, huh. which went to Teresa. And then the, the, the lot will remain in the hands of the, this Genoese family up until the second half of the 14th century. So it's, it's an attractive package of lands that these aristocrats, these people who are close to the king, are aware of, they want it, they, they press the king for it, and um, the lot passes hands and in so doing i've been able to sort of study deeply i mean up close um not only you know how this transfer of the lot benefited the king but also you know in which ways this this property uh helped these aristocrats pursue their own connections, their own interests, whether socioeconomic, familial, and spiritual. So I think that what this case study does is illuminate the interpersonal workings of politics at the hmm. time, for sure, right? It's almost a case of, well, I scratch your back and you scratch mine, right? but it has broader implications for the governance of the crown, right? I mean, some of these people are going to become like Vidal, right? The person who changes and, and, and configures the new legal landscape of uh, the kingdom of Aragon through the Ius Comune. Teresa Gil de Vidaure, for example, will found her own baronial lineage. Hmm. Right, and she and her sons are going to be a you know fundamental piece of support throughout the many campaigns that James I will undertake in the second half of the 13th century. Right? 
right? The Genoese is, Genoese family is a way of connecting the crown of Aragon into a sphere of influence in the Western Mediterranean, right? And, and this is around the time when we see the first fundacos, for example, being established in Tunis and Buji, for example. So, so, you know, we're looking at a very specific set of people, specific set of lands. Um, but my, my sense is that this is helping us illuminate broader patterns and in, in ways of sort of organizing and governing uh, the crown of Aragon. I, I, yeah, I think that sounds great. Um, really quickly, what are, what are fundacos? Fundacos, these are, this comes from the term, the Arabic term funduks. Okay. These are buildings that were established throughout the Mediterranean in Muslim lands originally by Christian entities. There's Genoese fundacos, mm. there's Pizan fundacos, Venetian fundacos, Catalan fundacos, right? So it's almost like a mini almost like a mini consulate in foreign lands, right? It's a place where Catalan merchants could bring their own merchandise, mm. leave it in that building, use the building for lodging and, and, and sort of um, trade within these Muslim contexts. That's, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I didn't, I mean, it's, it's kind of creating these networks of trade in, in a sense, right? Where they can be, where they can be safe and comfortable. Yes, um, and this is the work that, um, the, my dissertation advisor, Olivia Radley Constable, at least one of them, because I also had another dissertation advisor. Th- this is the work she pioneered. Okay. Uh, the study of the Fondacos, yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I never I never knew that. Um, so I, I have one last question, which is kind of a, a more general question, a more kind of ways of, of approaching this, this subject question. Um, so I, I do love the way you really begin kind of with these very particular, very precise um, very concrete examples and work out to bigger, bigger explanations of what's going on. Um, so I was, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about the, about what you see as being kind of possible as we move forward. And we deal with texts, these primary texts, like the Libre Reportament de Valencia that you mentioned earlier, and just kind of what you think texts like this might be able to tell us about the history of Valencia, and also ways that it might change our understanding of the history of Valencia as well. So one thing that I'm really looking forward is to see more Arabists, for example, engage with the Libre del Repartibe, right? Because I see it as a a document that not only is going to tell us about how Valencia is going to be uh, redistributed and restructured with this new Christian settlement, but it's also a testimony of, of a vanishing world, right? It's, it's the last piece of evidence that we have for an Andalusi Valencia, right? And why is that? Because every single donation has to specify who those lands and houses belong to formerly, hmm. right? So each donation is going to tell us this piece of land is going to go to this person. But it's telling us also that the piece of land had formerly belonged to, in most cases, a Muslim individual, in some cases, a Jewish individual. 
right? Why is that? Well, they need to be able to locate it, right? And, and in the absence of, you know, uh, street markings and, and names of, of municipal uh, locations, etc. people are going to say, well, do you remember where the houses of Ali were located, right? And so we have this record that has been largely untapped. Um, there's excellent work being done by Maria del Carma Barceló in the Universidad of Valencia, Universidad de Valencia, but more needs to be done. There, more people who have the right linguistic skills need to continue to mine this document to sort of recreate the picture of Andalusia Valencia um, that began to disappear uh, with the Aragonese conquest. Um, yeah, I, I think that that sounds great. I also love this idea of it being kind of this last snapshot of Andalusi Valencia. I think that's a beautiful image, although, yeah, kind of tinged a little bit with sadness as well as this, this vanishing world that is kind of transitioning from one from one way of being into another. Well, with that, unfortunately, we are going to have to stop. I could ask you another thousand questions about all this, but I I don't think that I should. I should let you let you go. Um, so, Belen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm glad you could come in and talk. And yeah, and thank you all for listening. And that's that's it. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.